Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. guys into another edition of take it to the bank uh unfortunately due to scheduling conflicts i was unable to hook up with one of the guys from dogs by nature that's the cleveland browns affiliate for sb nation but he did tell me that he's going to be coming on next episode so we're going to recap the browns draft just in case you missed it our last couple episodes i talked to rebecca toback about the Bengals, and another episode Vasily and myself talked to Brian Davis of Behind the Scale Curtain, and we talked about the Steelers draft. And that was a rather interesting one because we were both pretty negative on the draft. And actually, Brian kind of came to their defense as, as expected as a writer for Behind the Scale Curtain. And he, he seemed to like most of the picks for the Steelers, which we both were scratching our heads multiple times during the draft, right in the beginning, especially when they drafted Terrell Edmonds. But enough of the draft talk right now. That's pretty much what everyone's talking about. We're gonna, we're gonna, we've got a good show planned for tonight. We're going to talk about a couple different things. We're going to preview a little bit of the schedule. We're going to introduce a couple new segments that are going to be going on for the next couple of months. We have a lot of great content. Definitely check us out on BeMoreBeatdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at BeMoreBeatdown. You can follow me on Twitter at RealLoganLevy. We are looking for sponsors. I just want to say this now. We do have a couple sponsors that are, will be coming on and joining our team eventually. We just have to work out the fine contract details. I have my capologist, uh, Yitzi Weiss, working on working on that for me but uh first things first i wrote an article on baltimore beatdown about the ravens mindset and this is something i've kind of been saying since the draft is i think that there was a huge shift in in their mindset and their philosophy and it was very evident in the 2018 nfl draft now as i say this i think that right now there's a lot of evidence pointing that direction but this theory of mine or this take of mine will only be confirmed or denied in the 2019 NFL draft because that, that's where the money's going to happen. That's where we're going to see are they really committed to continuing to build the offensive side of the ball or are they stuck in their old ways and this, was just, this year was just an anomaly. So, Vasily, I'm going to let you get started. What do you think? Is, am I overreacting? Is there a change in mindset? What's really going on? I think there is a change in mindset. I, I would have to agree. Um, Evidence being passing on Derwin James previous years, it would be very unlikely that the Ravens would pass on a falling uh, premium defensive talent. But not only that, they doubled up on tight ends, um, rookie tight ends. They tripled up on free agent wide receivers. And I think that does show that they understand the rule changes um, that, are, that have been made across the league uh, make fielding a potent offense absolutely essential. Yeah, the one thing I do want to mention about the triple up and wide receivers uh, signings, 
all three were relatively short-term deals. Crabtree, I know, had the longest deal with three years, but that's kind of a classic Ravens signing. So to me, that really wasn't a changing in the mindset just because it was. He's a 30, he's 30 years old. He's definitely not in the prime of his career. He's just leaving the prime of his career. But the Sneed signing and the Brown signing really weren't too common for the Ravens. Both are relatively young, but on short-term deals. And the reason why I say the 2019 draft will define it, because essentially all of those signings were short-term uh, solutions to a long-term problem. What are they going to do in 2019? Because wide receiver is still going to be a pressing need. With Marshall Yonda close to retirement, you could say, are they going to address the guard position? And who knows what's going to happen with Ronnie Stanley? He could price himself out of, out of Baltimore's range, depending on what they do with the cap. So they might need be in the market for another tackle, and Orlando Brown seemingly could be the tackle for the next four years, if not longer, So as, if he pans out like expected. So Next year, to me, is the year that's going to say they're going to prove that they changed their mindset or they're going to go back to their old ways. But I definitely agree with the Derwin James point. That, that to me, my jaw hit the floor. I, I, we had uh, a Baltimore beatdown. We were pre-writing articles like just to get him everything out. And once we saw Derwin was falling, I, I told uh, managing editor Kyle P. Barber, I said, just write the Derwin James pre-write. Just write it. It's going to happen because there's no way they're passing on this guy. I said, get Tremaine Emmons as a backup, but there's no way they're passing on Derwin James. And they did. And I thought that was so interesting. But another point that I want to make, and, and me and you seem to see eye to eye on this, is it's kind of like a half-assed rebuild, right? A half-assed rebuild, half-assed win now. Because if you're truly committed to a rebuild, you take the best player available, and you don't think twice about it. You say, I don't care about my needs right now. I'm trying to get the best roster I can for the future. And Derwin James was that answer. He, he would have been the consensus pick for a rebuild if you were going to go that direction. But obviously the Ravens don't feel like they need to enter a rebuild mode They're right now. And Steve Bashotti said it multiple times. He wants to be competitive every year. And we talk about this night and day in our chat is that that's just not possible in the NFL right now. You know, I really wonder if the Ravens are trying to have it both ways. Um, this offseason, they've made several win-now decisions, such as restructuring the contracts of Brandon Williams and Tony Jefferson, which pushes cap hits into the future. They also signed Brown, John Brown, as you mentioned, to only a one-year deal. They traded their 2019 second-round pick in the Lamar Jackson deal as well. Those are all win-now moves. Conversely... It seems like they're trying to rebuild at the same time. They drafted a QB in the first round, presumably to sit for a year. They also declined the option for serviceable right tackle Austin Howard. And they used their fifth draft pick, a valuable fourth rounder, um, on Anthony Everett to eventually take over for Jimmy Smith or Brandon Carr. But the cornerback depth chart was already stocked, well stocked with talent. And these could all be considered rebuilding type moves. So I want to ask you, Logan, are the Ravens trying to rebuild now, rebuild and win now at the same time? Oh, absolutely. I don't think that anyone's going to disagree with that. And the thing about the Lamar Jackson pick, and I, I've said it numerous times on this podcast, I love the pick because of the coaching staff. I love his fit because it seems like finally they got a quarterback that fits Marty's system. It fits Greg Roman and it fits James Urban. They know how to deal with a quarterback with his skill set. They know how to foster him to be a successful quarterback. They know how to develop him. There's no disputing that because we've said it numerous times. Flacco really has never fit into Baltimore's offense. You know, and you could talk to me about the Kubiak year. You could talk to me about all that. But the reality is, is I'm not, I'm not saying that the Ravens never adjusted or never helped Flacco because I think they certainly did at, at some points. 
But I am saying that now with their current coaching staff, they said Lamar is the guy because he fits our system. And if you think Flacco is going to be on the roster past 2019, unless they win a Super Bowl with him, I highly doubt it. I just would be very shocked if they made that move because it doesn't make sense. But you go back to the rebuild comment and, and the conversation because it, I think there is some water into it. If you're truly trying to win, uh, rebuild, if you're truly trying to look at the future of your roster and make it better and compete, maybe let's just say 2019, 2020, you don't make the restructures like you mentioned. You don't sign guys like John Brown and Willie Snead the short-term contracts. You, you don't deny Austin Howard, who's, who was relatively on a cheap deal, right? And then you don't screw your cap space for the future by all these restructures. And I know Tony Jefferson was only adding like $1.67 million, but you don't do that when you're trying to rebuild. And my question to you, and I think that it's, it's a question we ask ourselves pretty much daily on the chat, is should they be in a rebuild mode? I think you either have to, you have to go all in or you have to rebuild. It's a parity-driven league. The teams are meant to rise and then to fall. Unless you're Bill Belichick, and you have uh, you play in a weak division, and you can have a ten-year dynasty or a fifteen-year dynasty. It just doesn't make sense. The model doesn't work. The Ravens rebuilt in two thousand two. They fielded the youngest team in the history of the sport. It took them one year. They went seven and nine that year. They purged all kind of veterans to create cap space. They went seven and nine that year. Won the division the next year. They have done it before, and you know they could do it now. It doesn't make a lot of sense to try to do both things at once. It really doesn't. Yeah, but if you look at their roster needs last offseason, let's just say heading into the 2017 NFL draft, and then you look at their needs heading into the 2018 NFL draft, which needs were different? Which needs were filled last offseason that they didn't have to fill this offseason? Because <laughs> my answer is pretty much the same, is, and it's no, none. There, there was not many needs that, that changed over the course of the season because they got Tony Jefferson. Honestly, they created more needs because I thought safety became more of a pressing need heading into the draft because Tony Jefferson was not who we thought he was going to be, or, especially with Eric Weddle. Eric Weddle's play drastically declined, and I know you're going to tell me about his six interceptions or whatever it was and, and all that, but the bottom line is his play per, uh, regressed. I, look, I do use the eye test. I look at the film. If you take away his six interceptions, and might I add, I mean, I don't want to go hot takey here, but pretty lucky interceptions, but a lot of broken down coverage, a lot of missed uh, dropped interceptions. I mean, th these are just things that can't happen when you pay that much money for a safety. And you really have to look at the fact is their needs didn't change, but they changed their mindset. That's why I believe the mindset changed because they changed what they did because last year they, they said, okay, we're going to rebuild our defense. We're going to make our defense top tier. And they made several picks that over guys that, they, that we questioned. I mean, we both thought we were both slamming on the table for Juju Smith Schuster in the second round and they passed up on him. We were, and then this year, Arden Key in the third, passing up on him on the third round. I know he has his character concerns and I know pass rush is not a desperate need, but that's a guy I would have taken if I'm going for a rebuild. Well, okay, so to go back to the Eric Weddle, Tony Jefferson, it's a valid point. I think Weddle has a lot of value with his communication because if you remember before he came, there were breakdowns in the secondary all the time. And, yes, he has lost a step, and, yes, he missed that tackle against the Bears that cost the Ravens that game, um, but he does have some value. Jefferson, on the other hand, you know, they're the same, they're the same kind of guy. They're box safeties, and to pair two box safeties isn't going to produce an elite defense. But the one saving grace um, comparing needs from 2017 to 2018 
is they did make some nice, nice additions on the pass defense, which is uh, very valuable. From Judon had a huge year. He made a big step. He's probably the most underrated Raven on a national stage, in my opinion. He doesn't get any love. He had a huge year. Take uh, eight sacks, almost 20 tackles for a loss. But then he also had Marlon Humphrey, first-round corner. corner. Cornerback depth has been an issue for years, for years and years. Um, and then you had Bowser and, and Timmy Williams, who b- both are poised to, uh, to have some success going forward. So they did address that. But as far as stability on the offensive line or adding the wide receivers or actually adding to what you have instead of just trading out one piece for another, that is the problem when you don't have cap space. And for 10 years almost, the Ravens have continued to mortgage the future and mortgage the future. And when you don't have cap space, you can't build onto what you already have. You just have to swap one piece out for another and and your needs continue year after year after year. Yeah, but everyone wants to talk about how pass rush really was, or the edge rusher really wasn't a need. But other than Judon, who's really proven? Darius Smith has flashed certainly in his career, but he's entering the final year of his contract. T- Terrell Suggs, one, he might retire next year, but he also is entering the final year of his contract. So that's, an, to me, that, that makes the Arden Key selection, I don't know how you're going to do it in terms of roster spots just because right now they're so deep. But maybe if you didn't trade trade back so many times and go for quantity over quality, maybe you wouldn't have to have these questions. Maybe you wouldn't – I mean, Deshaun Elliott, great value pick. I love the selection, but you drafted essentially another box safety. I agree. I so, agree. They have so three it, of them fine now at the box safety. Back up. All three, Levine, Clark, and Elliott. And they really have five box safeties on the roster. Yeah, you, you don't have any center fielder types. I, and I'm not sure I, – I don't have the full draft list in front of me, like, of the results and stuff, so I'm not sure which box safety or center fielder types they truly passed on other than Dane Crookshank. But, again, you have all these guys that that are the same player, and, and, and you want to go back to the pass rush. Why aren't you trying to bolster arguably one of the most important positions in football today? I mean, we always talk about it all the time is that – the fa- in terms of the phases of the game, in terms of pass D, uh, run D, pass offense, special teams, and run and run offense, rushing offense, which one's the most valuable? And I already know your answer about the, which one's the least valuable. It's run defense, but yet the Ravens value that so much. So this is an or and I said on the last podcast with Kyle Andrews is that this is an organizational problem. One. They overvalue a lot of areas, and then they undervalue the most important things. Now, that's why this change of mindset is so critical for me because if they truly changed their mindset, if they truly said, you know what, I under- we understand now that run D is not that important. We need to get guy- playmakers, specifically a wide receiver and tight end. Running backs we'll deal with later. We can always just keep drafting them and figure that out, running back by committee approach. But that's the issue is that are they really going to change? And that's why the 2019 draft to me is so important. I've said it several times now, but it is because it's going to tell me whether or not they've truly grown as a franchise, whether or not Eric uh, DaCosta's really taken over. Because the thing that scared me is DaCosta kept saying numerous times in his pressers, nothing uh, critical is going to change. Not a lot's going to change. That scares the crap out of me if I'm a Ravens fan saying that, and they're telling me nothing much is going to change because they right now they're stuck in this mediocrity hole. Well, you know, if they miss the playoffs for the fourth year in a row, something has to give. They can't They can't continue with the empty seats and everything else. They're, everyone's excited that, that they picked Lamar Jackson thinking he's going to fill seats. Well, not, if, not from the bench. And not with uh, losing winnable games and playing bland, boring football, unappetizing, almost unwatchable football. Uh, you know, but they could. I agree with you. 2019 is going to be a big year. 
Let's see what happens with Suggs. Zadarius Smith uh, may move on. Bowser and Williams uh, may develop. They may not. But that's not a pressing need. You could always get a pass rusher next year. I wasn't very excited about the pass rushing crops this year. And really what they need, and we'll, and we'll get back to this in a later segment, is a penetrating five-tech. That what that's what really brings the uh, the defense together, the pass rush together. Yeah, but Arden Key was once considered a first. I mean, he is a first-round talent in my eyes. I had a first-round grade on him. The only issue with him was his character concerns. But you look at, and, and I know some people say that that they've shied away recently from taking guys with some character concerns, and that cert. I, I can't really put a take on that, but I I can't hate them from an organizational standpoint. From not taking a for, for not taking a guy because of his off the field issues. I mean, look at what Reuben Foster. I mean, he was considered one of the best players in the draft, and now he might not be in playing football ever again. Who knows in the NFL? Who knows what's going to happen with him? But you have to, to me, you have to take some chances. You know, you and they did it with Tim Williams last year. He had character concerns. Some people I didn't have him as a first round grade, but some people said he was one of the best pass rushers in that class. And then he fell to the third round. They just they just said, all right, we'll take him. And we didn't see much from him last year. I think that could change this year. And that's we'll talk about that in the later segment as well. But why not take a risk on a guy like Arden Key when you have two guys entering their contracts years? And history tells you that Zadarius Smith is not re-signing in Baltimore. Well, just to, to, to put a, a, a button on the key debate that we uh, are, are impromptu Arden Key debate, he's a very, very similar player to Tim Williams in on the field and off the field, and I think he's redundant at that point. Um, you know, he's he's a he's a little bit of a lean, quick twitch, speed rusher with character concerns. You already have one of those. Do you need to have another one? I disagree. Honestly, he's a be- was a better prospect than Tim Williams. I think that he has more moves in his arsenal, so to speak, than Tim Williams. I believe he's more athletic than Tim Williams. I believe I, I think they're similar in size, if I'm not mistaken. But to me. Key was would have been a great pick, and and that's a new guy I've kind of added on because I, I honestly forgot that 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 kind of happened. But look at this. Here here here's my, my final thing. We're gonna put a bow on this segment, I guess you could say. And here here's my final thought. And I'll let you kind of talk about it, and then we'll move on. But why on God's green earth? Why in any logic are you say, if I'm if I'm a Ravens scout or whatever, and I'm sitting in that draft room, and they say, okay, we're gonna trade up, we're gonna get Lamar Jackson. Isn't anyone in that? I wonder if anyone in that room is saying, wait, 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 we're going to do this even though our cap next year doesn't look pretty. And Joe Flacco, we're seemingly committed to him for a little bit because of his contract. I mean, they could find a way to make him a post-June post, one, post June 1 cut, but why wouldn't you use that 52nd overall pick and then that 2019 second rounder to continue to bolster your roster? I mean, 52, you could have gotten a really, really good playmaker, an impact guy. I mean, Let's just say hypothetically they take Derwin James at 16. 52, I believe they still would have been in, in play for Goddard, right? I think he went at 52. I think he went exactly at 52, actually. Um, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. They're trying to do two things at once. They, they have the ship going in two different directions. The only way it makes sense is if they think that Jackson can legitimately be a better option than Flacco this year. Um, and that remains to be seen. I think some people are underselling his chances. He has a lot of the same uh, flaws as Flacco, uh, but he brings some other added bonus to the table. Uh, all in all, it, it just doesn't—it just doesn't really add up to try to rebuild and win now at the same time, especially considering their cap their cap space manipulation that continues to put them behind the eight ball. 
when it comes to retaining their own best players. Yeah, so just to recap, Goddard actually went 49th overall, but the Eagles had to trade up to get him. So they, they, they had to trade up because they had 52, they okay. traded up to 49 okay. to get him. But still, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't have hated to, to move up three spots. I don't, I don't believe the Eagles gave up too much to move up three spots to get him. And we always talk about this too, is Ian Thomas was also, you could have gotten him traded up in the fourth round. And that was our biggest gripe, I think. I, I think I could speak for both of us when I say this is, they and we said it before is that they chose quality quantity over quality and that's to me that 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 that's weird because that's kind of a rebuild mindset too when you're just getting new players when you're seemingly overhauling your entire roster with and, and infusing it with young talent but i guess my issue was the talent they they brought in in in, in terms of those guys but i want to move on we are up against the clock right now um schedule we want to talk about a little bit about the schedule. So next, starting next episode, we're going to do an in-depth breakdown of every single game uh, once a week. We're going to talk about one game. We're going to start next week with our week one matchup with the Buffalo Bills. But this week, we kind of want to prep for it. We want to kind of lay out the land. And you, you told me before the show, Vegas had the over-under, what, eight, eight and a half? Eight. Exactly eight. Squared eight. And that makes sense to me. When you look at the schedule and you look at what they're doing, eight is a magic number. They're playing the, the NFC South, the AFC West, obviously their division, and then they have those two extra games. Um, what do you think uh, about the schedule? Because we talk about it a lot. That week three to week nine stretch is huge. It really is. On a macro level, overall thoughts of the schedule, um, it's not advantageous. There's two primetime road games. One of them's on a short week. There's a stretch of three straight road games. Early in the early going, and then another stretch of two tough road games in early December uh, in tough environments. Um, and then the road slate, the Ravens have not fared well on the road um, in the last few seasons. Out of the eight road games, five of the teams made the playoffs last season. Um, so I really do think that, that that eight, that number eight, eight and eight, barring some unforeseen developments, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, the mediocrity, I expect the mediocrity to continue. And the scary thing for some Ravens fans could be that I'm not sure eight and eight gets John Harbaugh fired. I'm not sure nine and seven, seven. I'm not even sure seven nine gets him fired, especially considering the fact that you drafted, like we said before, Lamar Jackson that fits this coaching staff. So that means if you were to fire Harbaugh, and probably with the new coach would come in and clean house and get his own guys in, you'd have to got, find a guy who's going to fit with Lamar Jackson because he is the future of this franchise, whether you like it or not, he is. Um, those other two games I mentioned before were against the Titans and the Bills. But that stretch to me is going to define their season, weeks three to nine. You kind of touched on it a little bit. you got Broncos, Steelers, Browns, Titans, Saints, Panthers, and then Steelers again. That's going to define the season. And that, that could define if Lamar Jackson plays or not. I My prediction is that he will play this season. My hope for the Ravens is that he doesn't because I believe that one more year, one year of sitting out, sitting out, to develop and kind of work on his footwork, work on his accuracy a little bit more, kind of study the playbook, kind of adjust a little bit more to the, the NFL speed will help him a lot. But I fear that they're entering week 11 with a losing record and they're going to try to turn around the season because John Harbaugh might feel some pressure. Well, that was my bold prediction last week, if I remember correctly. So, all right, so at Pittsburgh week four, um, at Tennessee week six, and then post by you have at Atlanta, at Kansas City, and at the Chargers. Out of those five games, which is which is the most difficult in your mind? That's tough 
to be honest, because I think you can make an argument either way, but I might go at Atlanta because Atlanta to me, they're one of the wild card teams. And that's what's so scary, I guess, about the Ravens schedule is that they play a lot of teams that I honestly can't get a good read on right now. Like the Broncos, I have no idea if they're going to be really good or really bad. I'm, I'm still confused about them. I'm curious what Case Keenum's going to do there. I'm, cur- I'm very, very curious about the Buccaneers. They're seemingly the most overrated team and overhyped team every offseason. But they brought in a lot of good talent on the defensive line. They bolstered their offensive line. And with that offense, in terms of skill positions, I'm not sure how many teams are really better than them. They're pretty deep at both positions. It's just a matter of if Jameis Winston can progress further in in his development. I mean, I know you're a Florida State guy, so I think you're a big Jameis Winston fan. But the Chiefs, another wild card team. I have no idea. Everything tells me they're going to slump hard, but who knows? Who knows with them just because some of the talent that they got. And they had – let's see what Kareem Hunt does. And let's see what Patrick Mahomes does because he's another wild card for me. And he's a guy who can prove that the air raid system can adapt to the NFL level. I know everyone wants to hate on that. And Cleveland. I'm a Cleveland guy through and through. Everyone calls me out on it. Everyone hates on me for it. But I think I'm higher on Cleveland than most. But I truly believe the Cleveland Browns are going to get eight wins this year. I went through their schedule. I looked at it. I believe eight wins is attainable for the Cleveland Browns. I mean, they pretty much they play 14 of the same games as the Ravens, obviously. But I truly believe that the Browns roster doesn't have too many holes on it. Their biggest roster hole to me is, is their head coach, but he's not even in control of the offense anymore. I love Todd Haley as a coordinator. I think with that arsenal of weapons and what he can do there, I mean, you have Chubb, Carlos Hyde, that receiving core, especially if Antonio Gallo- Callaway can stay on the field, that could be one of the best offenses in football. And you always talk about their need at left tackle, but I like Austin Corbett to fit there, or they might slide Joel Plutonio out there and then throw Corbett on the inside. But that roster right now to me is, re- is looking pretty good. And Mike Clay from ESPN wrote a pretty good article saying how the Cleveland Browns actually could be a sleeper wildcard team and I wholeheartedly agree with him but let's not get on that tangent but to answer your question after I've taken five minutes to rant about who knows what I think the Falcons okay okay um yeah I think it's either the Falcons or the Chargers um but Tampa's definitely coming on they finished strong and New Orleans at home, that's probably the toughest home game. I think the divisional games sometimes turn out a little easier just because the, the familiarity level. Uh, but but uh, it should be interesting. We'll start our deep dive uh, week one, Buffalo. Well, you want to do that next week? Yeah, next week. But also another team I forgot to mention when I went on that, that rant there is the, the Raiders. Who knows what's going to happen with the Raiders? I mean, John Gruden's building a roster. I mean, he said uh, in the offseason he's building, he wants to go back to 1998. And I don't doubt him when he says that when you look at the moves they made, especially with all the veterans they got. But that roster to me, I could see them flopping, but I could also see them winning that division. The Chargers are really good, but the, the Raiders are interesting. I mean, I, I, I can't doubt an offense with that kind of talent in terms of the offensive line. Let's see how Jordy Nelson adapts to the group. Let's see what they do without Michael Crabtree. But I somewhat like that roster. I'm, I'm not going to commit to them because I worry about injuries with them, honestly, just because they have a lot of veterans. They have a lot of old. I, I believe they, they have to have one of the oldest rosters in the NFL. I don't have the stats in front of me, but it has to be one of the oldest without a doubt. Um, the Raiders, yeah. And then going back to the West, the, the Ravens do catch a little bit of a break because they lost some of their, their marquee cornerbacks. Talib and Peters were both traded, actually, to the same team. Uh, but I, I think the West might be a little bit down this year. But the NFC South is uh, it's, it's, it's murderer's row. That, that's potentially four. That, 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 that's potentially four losses, in my opinion. Because I'd be shocked if they beat the Saints – 
I'd be shocked if they went to Carolina and beat the Carolina and beat the Panthers. I again, I just said that the Falcons is probably the hardest game out of the, the ones you listed. So I'm not sure they're going into Atlanta and beating Atlanta. And then the Bucks, the Bucks are the that wild card team. So the South is definitely tough. And then the West again, like you just talked about, definitely tough as well. So a lot of uncertainty as we would expect in the middle of May, but. Who knows? I mean, at, at this point, in, in in my eyes, the Ravens have the tools. They have the roster to an extent to be a competitive football team. Now, what you take as competitive and what your de- definition of competitive probably differs from mine, but I think they will be competitive, and that's scary for me because I don't think they're going to be dominant. I'd be surprised if they were to win more than 11 games this year. I think 10 is like their ceiling ceiling. Like, 10 is like their highest, like, I think they would have to play some re- probably their best football to get the 10 wins. I would put their floor at 6. I think 6 wins is their floor to me. So anywhere between 6 and 10, I know that's a pretty wide margin and a wide range. But 6 is my floor, 10 is my ceiling. What do you think? That's about right. I'm looking at it now. I, I think 10, maybe 11 if things really break well and, and you have some good injury luck and some bad injury luck for your opponents. On the downside – um, I think Buffalo and Denver are probably the two easy, most winnable games on the schedule. Um, and just looking through it. Uh, but Cincinnati's yeah. another team, too, that, that confuses me because I could see them again flopping like they did last year, but then I could also see them bouncing back because of what they did because we both love their draft. We both, they got both of my highest grade. I gave them an A. We talked about last week, or, or I talked about last week, or Rebecca Toback is that. This draft was perfect for them. They got great value, plus they got needs. They filled needs. Who knows what happens with Malik Jefferson, but their first three picks are instant player, instant immediate impact players. That could be a, uh, the twenty seven or the 2018 Saints-type draft that the Saints had last year in 2017 where they had like four or five immediate contributors. And to me, the Bengals could have that. We And then your other boy, Alden Tate, that's another guy who – Rebecca, it was interesting because Rebecca wasn't as high on that pick. She, she's like, I don't know if he's going to make the roster. I'm not really sure. But that's a guy who I think can make an impact right away, especially in the red zone. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's huge, and he has sticky hands. I mean, that's, it's, he's a red zone, he's a red zone uh, dream. Oh, um, yeah. But Cincinnati, I mean, you know, they could, they could beat out the Ravens. The Ravens could beat out them. You know what it's really going to come down to? Quarterback play. Oh, that's a good segue. This, guy, <laughs> this guy's professional in the podcast business. Wow, I like that. That's better than my segues. So another new segment I kind of teased in the beginning. Another new segment we're going to do is we're going to rank the – and we might do this in article form too. I'm not, we're not too sure. We're still trying to work out the details. But we're going to rank every position group in the AFC North, one to four. And I'll tell you, next week you're not, or next episode you're not going to want to miss because we're going to rank the offensive lines, and there's a lot of parity between my rankings and 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 my boy, my boys over there because we already kind of had an off off the uh, air conversation about it, and there's a lot of discrepancies. I have my team that's number one. I think he has it four maybe, and so it's going to be interesting for sure because I know and I. <laughs> I, you can guess who my number one team is with the best offensive line in the division. It's probably not that hard to guess, but you don't like it that much. But we're, we'll, we'll save that conversation for a different day. Quarterbacks. We're going to start with quarterbacks. Most important position on the field, without a doubt. And I'm going to give a little asterisk on my rankings because I believe they could change with a couple of moves. So I have Big Ben right now as the best quarterback in the division. I don't think that there's much of a dispute there. I don't, I, I don't know how you can argue that. 
even though he had kind of a up and down past couple of years, I still think he's the best quarterback in the division without a doubt. I believe he's still a top five quarterback, even with his inconsistencies, because when he's on, he's on. I mean, what was it a couple of years ago when he had both those uh, back to back games, like six or seven touchdowns or something like that? So Big Ben to me is still a top five quarterback. A lot of people doubt him, and especially with the Mason Rudolph uh, signing. But Mason Rudolph, again, is an interesting heir apparent to Big Ben. Number two, and I, I put this with an asterisk, is Joe Flacco. I believe that Joe Flacco, even though he's coming off of a horrendous, and I mean horrendous season last year, where he was just completely ineffective for the first nine games, and the last seven he kind of turned it on a little bit, but it was all relative because his numbers that he put in his, his last seven games when were like close to average at best, you know, so... I'll put that with an asterisk. Number three, and this is a very, very close number three, and I could easily flip these. I actually struggled with it when I was formulating these rankings is Tyrod Taylor slash Baker Mayfield. But the thing is, I believe that Baker Mayfield would be number – if he was the starting quarterback, I believe he'd be ahead of Flacco. And I know it's crazy because he hasn't played an NFL snap, but he was my QB1, and I believe that he's a difference maker. I believe that he's going to be perfect in that Browns offense with a great running game and a plethora of weapons all over the field. But Tyrod Taylor is number three, but he's slightly behind Joe – just because I struggle with his arm strength, I struggle with his accuracy at times because it, it frustrates me, but the guy doesn't turn the ball over that much, and that's so critical for me is that he's very smart. He's got high football IQ, and he, and he makes decent decisions. Just sometimes his arm strength and his accuracy fails him at times. And number four is Andy Dalton. Uh, Dalton, to me, is it's the most interesting and confusing and just frustrating scenario for the Bengals is that they want to give him no competition. Again, me and Rebecca talked about it last week, but they give him no competition, and it's like, why? How many playoff wins does this guy have? What has this guy done time and time again? He's failed Cincinnati time and time again, yet they keep relying on him. I just don't understand because he has weapons all over the place with Eifert, Green, Boyd. I mean, he's had it. Remember the year we were talking about the other day? Remember when he had the, the, that insane receiving core? Who was it? Uh, Sanu, Marvin Jones, and Green. And they had Eifert, too. I mean, that's insane to not produce and not get at least one playoff win, right? Right. He's never had a playoff win. Um, I hate to agree with you, but I do. With the quarterback rank rankings, AFC North, Big Ben's my number one, fresh off a 4,000-yard season, six-time Pro Bowler. He led four game-winning drives last year. Uh, his supporting cast certainly helps him. He has one of the best receivers. He's got a lot of good receivers. Uh, but... Love him, love him or hate Ben, you have to respect his toughness. Flacco is my number two. It's actually a little bit of a tough call for me. His 5.7 <clears throat> yards per passing attempt in 27, or 2017 was absolutely pitiful. Uh, and his accuracy, as we know, comes in and goes. Uh, he's a 10-year veteran who just doesn't really p play smart football. But uh, still, at the end of the day, his postseason pedigree combined with Lamar Jackson's upside uh, gives the Ravens the second slot in my mind. Third is Tyrod. Agree there. His best quality is protecting the football, as you said. He only had four interceptions on 420 passing attempts last season. He also led the Bills to the playoffs. What an accomplishment. And his mobility is a plus. Um, and I'm also bullish. I agree with you on Baker. He's going to be a good player, I think, unfortunately. Fourth has to be Dalton. He definitely had his worst professional season last year. His QBR was 42, which was worse than Flacco's, believe it or not. I mean, you know, playing behind that offensive line is not easy. 
He was sacked, uh, you know, very frequently. But he also has A.J. Green at his disposable disposal. And at the end of the day, the Bengals' uninspiring backup situation cements them to the seller of the AFC North as far as quarterback rankings are concerned. Well, it's actually interesting. Uh, behind the steel curtain, uh, they dropped an article. I think it was last week. Yeah, it was May 10th. Oh, so it was only a couple days ago. It was four days ago, but I guess last week. Uh, they released an article, and I thought it was pretty interesting. And so their article it was about uh, the 2018 NFL draft could very well be known as the future of the AFC North quarterback. Obviously, that's so true. The only issue is, I mean, every team in the AFC North other than the Bengals took a, took a quarterback early. The Bengals waited, and they took – uh, Logan Woodside from Toledo in the seventh round. But other than that, every team struck a quarterback within the first three rounds. I mean, the Ravens and the Browns obviously took one in the first, and then the Steelers took Rudolph in the third. But then they attached a poll to it, and I thought it was pretty interesting. And obviously you have to take into account, obviously behind the steel curtain there is some bias there with their, with their readers. But the poll was which AFC North quarterback will have the most success in the next decade. Finishing in last place was Andy Dalton, which should come as no surprise. Finishing <laughs> in third was Baker Mayfield, which was, to me, I, I completely disagree with just because of the weapons and what they've done to build around them, not only for, for 2018, 2019, but for, for further, for the future, because of Callaway on that four-year deal, obviously as a rookie, you, his rookie contract. Uh, Landry signed that long-term deal. I mean, Josh Gordon and Corey Coleman are the only guys who are coming up on contract years soon. But the thing is, is with their cap space seemingly never-ending, regardless of what they do, they're going to be able to lock those guys up. But there was rumors that they were going to trade Corey Coleman if the right offer came along. And they don't really need him at this point. He's just honestly, he's a luxury if Callaway pans out. But then finishing th uh, second was Lamar Jackson. Which and this was and by a very very big margin, um, Mason Rudolph finished with fifty seven percent of the votes. So obviously again some bias there, but I thought that was interesting. I thought that was interesting what they what they put out there. Definitely check that article out from uh, from one of our uh, affiliates there. But I thought it was again it was a, it was pretty interesting. Obviously you got to take account the bias from that reader fan base, but I don't know. I just don't. I like Mason Rudolph. I just have to see what he's gonna do in the future, but. Cool to see Lamar getting some love, getting some love from the ri from the rivals. But our last segment, and this is another thing that we're going to be doing continuation of, is we're going to break down every Ravens rookie that they drafted, all 12 draft picks. We might even go to UDFAs at some point. we got to figure it out. But we're going to start with just the 12 draft picks. We're going to kind of break down each week or each episode what they're going to do, uh, what their 2018 outlook's going to be, what their fit could be. And this is also going to be paired with my film study pieces. Uh, but, yeah, so we're going to do something different. We, we, we didn't want to talk about the first-rounders right away because that's what everyone's talking about. Everyone always talks about the first-round pick, especially the Lamar Jackson. He's pretty much taken over the news cycle. So we're going to talk about their last pick. We're actually going to go in reverse order. So we're going to talk about Ferris State's uh, defensive end, Zach Seiler, who the Ravens took in the seventh round with one of their picks. And I'll let you kind of start on it. We both watched film on him. We both kind of studied him up. What do you kind of see from him? What do you think about his 2018 outlook? What has he got to improve? What, is, what are his strengths? What, what do you like about him? So he's a well-built well 6'6", 295-tech um, from Fair State, which is D2. He came out early as a fifth-year junior. He was dominant in 2016 with 19 and a half sacks, five forced fumbles, and a boatload of tackles for a loss. He followed that up with seven sacks last season. Uh, interesting note, his father was an Olympic wrestler for the United States. So he has uh, 
you know, good bloodlines there, good pedigree. Um, and what really propelled him up the board was he, he just excelled. He went crazy at the pro day, which he actually participated at Michigan uh, with, the, with the Wolverines. He ran a 4-8-40, 40-yard dash. He did 31 reps on the bench. And he just impressed everyone. I, I believe some said he he looked better in drills than Maurice Hurst, who who was considered a first round talent. Um, so watching tape, they they ran a lot of four man fronts. Um, he he did play lineup on both the right and the left side. I thought he had a nice rip move um, to kind of get under get under the pads and get around the the blockers. His bull rush was. Uh, was was fine. He made some plays. He did show some stack and shed ability. And what really stood out was his closing speed. He could uh, chase down the quarterback from the backside, and he could get home when he needed to. Now, obviously, that's against uh, lower level competition, and he has a lot of development to do. But the, but I was I was intrigued by his his skill set. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was one of the picks that I scratched my head when they made it, just because. My boy from Iowa, Akram Wadley, um, running back, was was still there. And I'm, I, obviously, he went undrafted, which was a huge shock to me. I couldn't believe it. Some people thought he was going to be a third-round selection. Ends up going undrafted. But And I believe he went to the Titans, signed with the Titans. But the more, when I watched this tape, when I sat down and looked at it, you, I think you nailed it perfectly. I, I don't really have too much to add about what he does. But the thing is, is and that I worry about is you talked about his rip move, but I didn't see too many of those. I didn't I didn't see too many moves in his arsenal. I kind of saw and I'm not saying he's like this guy at all. Please do not take this as me saying, oh, I'm comparing it to him and I want to make sure that's clear. But I kind of saw something of a guy like a like a small like, like the typical small school prospect who just completely amends and just outworks and out hustles and just bullies lower level competition so Marcus Davenport I mean he's nothing like Davenport obviously a little bit different in terms of their style and their fits but I true I truly believe that he can play uh Sealer that is now that thank you for the per- correct pronunciation but I truly believe Sealer has some potential but he just dominated the competition he was supposed to dominate. He just did exactly what he was supposed to do. He was very athletic, and he was just bigger, faster, and stronger than all the guys he played. So that, that concerns me is how that's going to translate because in the NFL, he's not going to be much bigger, he's not going to be much stronger, and he's not going to be much, that much faster than most of the NFL tackles that he's going up against. But I tru- but he could be a good fit as a five-tech. I'm curious what they're going to do with him in terms of the roster because they have – Seemingly every year they have so much depth at defensive line. I mean, there's a couple guys who we do, who we might not think even make it. Like Carl Davis might get traded or might get cut. I mean, I'm just not sure they have the roster spot for him, let alone uh, Sealer. So curious what they're going to do with him. I mean, if you just want to take a quick look at their roster, Brandon Williams, Michael Pierce, Willie Henry, Brent Urban, and Chris Wormley, in my eyes, are complete locks. And then uh, you have Carl Davis kind of on that limbo, I believe. And you still have Bronson Kafusi fighting for a spot. We both believe he's gone. We did that on our other show where we did our way too early roster predictions. But we both think Kafusi's gone. But then you look at uh, Sealer. I'm not sure. Again, it's a number crunch. They're, they're deep everywhere. Someone big's going to have to get cut. And who knows, he might get one of those questionable camp injuries that sen- ends, him on the IL- ends up on the IR. Or he might make the team. Or maybe they might stash him on the practice squad if they feel, cu- if they feel fit. But I'm not sure they're going to do that because he could be snatched up pretty quickly if 
if he if he ends up on the practice squad, kind of like what what happened with Woodrum last year. I know they ended up getting him, but who knows? Because from what I've been reading, he was one of the more hyped up smaller school prospects. Agree. Uh, at least five or six teams brought him in for uh, for a workout in the pre-draft process. I don't know if he would last. Listen, it's the seventh round. You're you're taking a flyer on a guy. Uh, he brings a little bit of insurance in case uh, Urban comes down with another injury. You know, I think he's been injured more than he's been healthy over his four-year career so far by, by a decent margin as well. Um, let me see what he looks like in camp. They do need a five-tech, I believe, whether whether it is Siler or they look at um, someone next year potentially, which is going to be, from all, from all looks, an amazing defensive line crop coming out in the draft next year. But, uh, you know, the Ravens, they need that. They've been looking for that pass rushing defensive end since Trevor Price, to be honest. You remember Rex Ryan's 2016 organized chaos defense. They led the league in points allowed, third down percentage, sacks, takeaways, and they led the Ravens to the franchise record 13 regular season wins. And you know who led the, the, uh, the team in sacks that year? Trevor Price. And you, you need that interior guy to be the tertiary option. You have the two outside linebackers, hypothetically, whether it's Siler or someone else, Judon going forward, and hopefully Bowser will continue to progress. And you need that third guy. And that's what really takes a good defense and makes it great, makes it elite that we've seen in Baltimore over the years, but not recently. Well, that's kind of why they, well, we believe they re-signed Urban because when her, Urban went out, they really struggled to get much production from that five technique spot. Um, really, because because we noticed, and you pointed this out to me, and then I went back and looked at the film, is that Henry did most of his production when they kicked him inside that three tech, right? <laughs> so yep. they really need a five tech, and he, I'm not saying he's going to be the solution from day one, but he could be the long term solution for the next couple of years. And Urban, again, I can't count on this guy at all. If he produces, he produces, but there's no way I can sit here and say that he's going to be someone we can ca they can count on just because of his injury history. I mean, he's de obviously, you said it before, he's been injured way more than he's been healthy, and he's flashed a lot when he's healthy. Very talented player, can get great rush from that five-tech spot, but the issue for me, because he's, he's big, he's physical, great with his hands, love his technique, love his athleticism, but again, he's not going to do you good when he's sitting on the bench with an injury. He's not going to do you good when he's stashed on your IR every year. So you have to start looking for other options, and he kind of reminds me a little bit of Urban in that sense when I watch his tape. Got to work on his technique, like I said. Got to work on being better at the point of attack. But he could be that guy just because he's massive. He, he's, he's a huge player, and it would be interesting to see what what they do with him in terms of where they're going to put him on the roster. Uh, just a quick note real quick. Uh, I saw this on BaltimoreRavens.com. Uh, Tavon Young says he's ready to rumble and he's ready to go for the uh, OTAs and training camp and things like that. And that's awesome because you talked about it with uh, the selection of Averitt is Tavon Young is definitely a guy who they certainly – they might not necessarily need because of the depth of the cornerback position, but he brings that defense to another level, especially if he can replicate what he did in his rookie season. Certainly could – and that could provide them with some versatility because that could help them switch Kennedy maybe to safety, maybe put him in those – put him in as that fifth defensive back in those nickel and dime packages. I mean, there's so many different things they can do with, with Kennedy if Young is healthy, not to mention Jalen Hill. I mean, no, he's coming off of that torn ACL, but – 
if he comes back and he can he can play at a serviceable level, he gives them more flexibility, but or versatility to say the least. But Averett to me is another interesting player to watch, and I I don't have too much more to say at the show. We're winding it down in our final segment, but I will end with this. Lamar Jackson, because everyone wants to talk about the Lamar Jackson, Joe Flacco rumors, and I didn't prep you on this, um, and I'm sorry, but I just saw something about it, and I just have to vent about it because it's ridiculous. At no point, there is no reports, I haven't heard from anybody that I've talked to, that Lamar Jackson has reached out to Flacco, and Flacco has ignored him. There is no reports that any of that went down. There is no reports, or there's nothing to lead me to believe that Flacco is straight up ducking him. There's no, there's nothing suggesting that right now. So the idea that Flacco is is a bad teammate or a bad whatever is just an absolute joke. Listen, I'm not a big Flacco supporter. I've I hold the guy accountable. He had a great five years, but he hasn't been great lately. But the thing is, is that. What do you expect, number one, from a guy? What do you want Flacco to do considering they just drafted his replacement? Do you want Flacco to bend over hand and foot to take this guy and, and train him so he can replace him? No. But Flacco's going to – I believe that Flacco's going to be a good teammate. I believe that Flacco's going to help him when they get to training camp and OTAs, things like that. But until then, why there's been no – again, there's been no reports that Flacco has ignored him and – Flacco denying to talk to the media is not a big deal. It's not a huge concern. Would you? I mean, here's my question to you, and I know I'm putting you on the spot, but would you rather Flacco do what he's doing, or would you rather him be like Big Ben and go on local radio stations and complain about the pick, and then cause more drama and cause more stories, and then put more pressure on the rookie quarterback to have to stand up and 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 put their big boy pants on and be mature, so to speak, to the media and have to answer these tough questions like, what do you think when when the, the quarterback or the, the franchise quarterback saying this about you and saying that that they shouldn't have taken you, you know? It's just ridiculous to me that, that people freak out about about when teams draft the potential successor, you know? It, it makes no sense to me. It pisses me off. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I agree for the most part. Um, I think Flacco's kind of probably in a state of, of shock still right now. He's, let's face it, he's been in, in many ways coddled by the Ravens since he was drafted. Uh, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's got a former Heisman Trophy winning, exciting quarterback breathing down his neck. They're calling him out in the media for not uh, practicing outside of the team structure with the receivers. Uh, I don't blame him for not saying anything. It, it, you know, I feel bad for the guy in, in a way. You know, so, uh, he's a very polarizing player in this, in Baltimore these days. It seems like you still you either he's still your guy, he's still your favorite quarterback, you, you still have his back, or you hate him, you forget all the good things he did. And he's done a lot of good things, not only in 2012 and 2011 playoffs, in 2010 playoffs, in 2014 playoffs, in big games against the Patriots and the Steelers, regular season games, routinely, routinely. But it's it's a quarterback's a unique position. It's not where it's a running back committee or you know, really any other position outside of maybe offensive line where there is some type of rotation, some type of timeshare. Um, and it's, you know, he knows the writing's on the wall. Let's, let's face it. But, 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 but I, I just, I hope he's going to be a good mentor, mentor. And I think he will be. And he probably just needs some time to wrap his head around what, what really transpired. Listen, the quarterback position before Flacco, before the Flacco era was an absolute joke in Baltimore. It was a revolving door. They struggled to get any stability. They, they struggled to get really a lot of the Ravens struggled to get a guy that's going to be a leader, that's going to provide some consi- somewhat consistent play. 
Flacco provided that. He provided stability for the most part of the or of his first five, maybe five years or so. He was pretty consistent, and those play and that playoffs in 2012, 2013 was magical. What he did in that Super Run was absolutely magical. What he and he, without a doubt, he brought a Super Bowl trophy, the Lombardi Trophy, to Baltimore. People of Baltimore, Ravens fans, are forever should be forever indebted to him for that. No doubt. He deserves love for that and deserves respect and he deserves people's admiration for what he did. But the reality is, and this is my second point, is that when you play like absolute garbage for the better part of five seasons, when you're inconsistent, when you only have one year that's considered decent in the NFL in five years, I don't know how the writing is on the wall. And I hope this motivates him to say, all right, I got to step my game up because, or I'm going to get replaced because I've been absolute, because I haven't been good. And, and he'll be the first to tell you, and that's what I like about him, is that he'll be the first to say, I got to get better. I got to work on my game. I got to do these things because he even said in his pressers last year I'm not playing good I'm not playing good right now I'm not and that that was the truth and maybe those final seven games him and Marty connected more maybe the injuries were, weren't as big of a deal or maybe we underplayed the value of the injuries but he he definitely was, was better and there were signs of improvement in the final seven games but to me you there should be no s surprise for him that he was that they selected Lamar Jackson and to be honest your contract is ridiculous at this point, Joe. I mean, let's just let's just call it what it is. That restructure, and I know you're big on that, is that the restructure was crazy. The restructure completely altered the franchise, and it hurt them. It hurt them badly because now they're in a situation where they're gonna they're looking at some sizable dead money in the future because if they part ways with him because of the way they set up the strong the, the contract structure. Now you don't want to blame Joe for that because if you're Joe, let's get all the money I can get. You blame the Ravens organization for one restructuring him, two for structuring the way they did in the beginning, and three the fact of the matter that you you coddled him for the most part of his career, like you said, for what? I mean, at what point do you realize that he isn't the solution anymore? And to me, I realized that in 2016. 2016 was the year that I said, this guy is not the answer anymore. And I'm sorry, call it no reaction, call it what you will, but he's not. And I hope he proves me wrong. I hope that it, it would be great for, for him to come out and have a career year. I know our boy Kyle Andrews thinks that he is going to have one, but to me, this is your year, Flacco. This is make or break. I don't care what happens with terms of injuries. The Ravens, they loaded up on wide receivers and tight ends. Whether you like or, d or don't like who they drafted or who they signed, they brought in playmakers who have proven success in the NFL in terms of Steed, Brown, and Crabtree. They got in, They got two of the b top four or five tight ends in the draft. They did everything they could to get to make sure he will have all the tools necessary to be successful. Yes, they lost Howard because they declined his option. They lost Jensen. But let's just see how Bozeman settles. Let's just see what happens with Skur at center, and let's just see what happens with Orlando Brown. But the fact is, when you look at their offensive side of the ball, they have a chance to be a top 16 unit. So it's your it's make or break, Joe. I'm sorry, and I just had to get that out. Thank you for adapting to the to the impromptu segment. But dude, it's ridiculous. But that's gonna do it for us for taking to the bank. You hear the music coming? We're out.
Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Kerryu, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical.